Let's pray together. Lord, your word is wonderful. It's really wonderful. It's more precious than gold or fine silver. It's sweeter than honey or the drippings of the honeycomb. By it, your servant is warned, admonished, instructed, built up and equipped. We just thank you for your word, Lord. It's wonderful to us. It just nourishes our soul. We're able to feast on it. We thank you for it, Lord. It is so good to us. We thank you that it's living and active. And we ask that this morning your word would accomplish a good work in our hearts. We ask that this morning, Holy Spirit, you would, working through your word, cause us to fall more in love with Jesus, to be more in awe of the person of Jesus Christ, to be more fervent worshipers of the King, more diligent servants of the King, more active proclaimers of the good news of the kingdom. Just do a work in our hearts, Lord. We've come before you. We love you so much. It's so wonderful to be with you and your people. Thank you for how much you love us, Lord. It's more than we could ever fathom. Thank you for healing us, forgiving us, restoring us, staying with us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for hearing us, and thank you for speaking to us. It's wonderful to be with you this morning, Lord. Bless our time in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, brothers and sisters, we want to remind ourselves of the context of the book of Hebrews. As we've been delving into some details concerning creation, it would be easy to lose the big picture. Remember that the context of the book of Hebrews is that this group of Jewish Christians were about to, really had in the past, but were about to, to a new degree, experience persecution. Nero had made Christianity an illegal religion in the Roman Empire. And many Christians were losing their lives for the sake of their faith. Many had been tormented, many had been murdered and martyred and killed in all sorts of heinous ways. And these Christians, to which the epistle, the letter of the Hebrews is written, these Christians were in danger of giving up. You see, their Christianity hadn't brought them anything but difficulty, really. Certainly they had experienced that inner peace, no doubt about it, when they recognized Yeshua as Mashiach, Jesus as the Messiah. Certainly they experienced a peace they had never known, but as life wore on and circumstances got difficult, they're much like you and I. They got their eyes off of the Messiah and onto the circumstances, and now they're feeling overwhelmed. Can anybody relate? Now they're feeling intimidated. Can anybody relate? Now they're a little bit fearful. Can you understand? And now they are in danger of giving up. And so the author is writing them to encourage them not to give up, to encourage them to hold the line, to maintain the course. And the strategy of the author in doing so, inspired by the Holy Spirit, his strategy is to, in their minds, so elevate the person of Jesus Christ 
that it would seem insane to depart from fellowship with him. That's his strategy. To so elevate in their view, in their hearts, in their minds, in their spirits, the person of Jesus Christ, that it just wouldn't make no sense to leave him. No matter what's going on in the world, no matter how difficult it's become to follow him, no matter how little things are making sense, the strategy of the author is to show Christ as being better than any other way they've ever known or will know, to be superior to any other way, and to be supreme over all things. I like that way A.W. Pink put it. He said, the theme of Hebrews is the superabounding excellence of Christianity, the sum and the substance, the center and the circumference, the light and the life of Christianity, Jesus Christ. I like the way John MacArthur put it. The theme of Hebrews is simple. Jesus Christ is superior to and preeminent over everyone and everything. And his absolute supremacy overshadows all else and demands the worship and allegiance of every individual. And in his strategy, the author of the book of Hebrews comes out hot and heavy in chapter 1 in presenting Jesus as supreme over all else. In chapter 1, we see Jesus presented as being better than the prophets and better than the angels. We see him presented as the son of God and the heir of all things. He's declared to be the creator of the world and the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's nature and the sustainer of the universe. He is shown to be the high priest of perfection. He's seated at the right hand of majesty on high. He's told to have a more excellent name. He is the one whom the angels worship. He is the exalted king. He's shown to be the Lord of righteousness, the anointed one, the eternal, the unchanging one, and the ultimate conqueror. That is who Jesus Christ is presented to be in just chapter 1. Now, we've dealt with verse 1, and we will finish verse 2 today. Verse 1 starts with the word God in many of your English translations. It does it in the original Greek, but God is the subject of the first sentence of the book of Hebrews. Have you ever noticed that God is the subject of the first sentence of the whole Bible? In the beginning, God. And he is the subject of the first sentence of the book of Hebrews as well. And we spoke about that. And we spoke about the fact that it says here, God after he spoke long ago. We spoke about this fact, that God has always chosen to communicate to humanity. God doesn't want to be removed to humanity. God doesn't want to be strictly mysterious to humanity. He doesn't want to be unknown. He wants to be known. And so he has endeavored to communicate. And it says there in verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. We spoke about that. That God has chosen to speak to humanity in many portions and in many ways. That means bit by bit, over and over again, in various manners. God has been very careful to thoroughly communicate himself to humanity. And we spoke about in that Bible study, general revelation. That is the way that creation speaks to us about God. And we spoke about special revelation. 
the way that the word of God and prophetic utterances and prophetic revelation speak to us about the person of God. But all of that revelation, as good as it was and is, was incomplete. It was not yet perfect or full. Things were not yet totally revealed. So then when we got into verse 2, it says, In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. And there we spoke about the fact that Jesus is the full and final revelation. Everything God wants to say to humanity is revealed in Jesus. In Jesus, all communication is complete. There's nothing more to say beyond the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is the source, the center, and the end of everything God has to say. Want to know anything about God? You look to the person in the work of Jesus Christ. And there it declares that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we spoke about the fact that he is a unique Son of God. Because throughout history, kings and royalty have been called the sons of God. Christians are called in the New Testament the sons of God. Angels and judges and leaders have been sometimes called the sons of God. But we talked about the fact that Jesus is the unique son of God. He's unique because of his oneness with the Father. We talked about the Godhead and the Trinity. He's unique because of his pre-existence, right? He always has been. He wasn't created. Don't confuse that with the idea of begotten, and we spoke about that. He's unique because his ability to give life. He possesses life in himself, and he can give it to whomever he wishes, both initial life and eternal life. He's unique because he has authority to judge and forgive sins. And he is unique because of his resurrection from the dead. His physical, literal resurrection from the dead, which was strong proclamation according to Romans chapter 1, verse 4, declares him to be the Son of God. Now we also spoke about the fact in verse 2 that he is the heir of all things. In these last days God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And we spoke about what that means. That he is a participator, a co-owner of and in the kingdom. And we talked about the fact that the New Testament says we are co-heirs with Christ Jesus, correct? That means that we are to be current participators in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is both present and future. But if you wait for just the future fulfillment, you're missing out on the present blessing. We are co-heirs, co-operators in the kingdom of God, and we're to be participating in it now. And then we got to this little phrase, through whom also he, God, made the world. Now we dealt with first two weeks ago the question of origins. Because much of the world says that there is no God, matter just always was. There was nothing and then it exploded. But the Bible says, in the beginning, God. He already was, he always has been, and he created all things. We talked about the question of origins. And then we talked about the question of processes that God may have used in creation. We talked there about macroevolution, and we talked about theistic evolution. And what comes to mind now, the question that's very obvious, is how long did it take God to do it? We believe that he did it. 
We believe that he spoke all things into existence, as the Bible says over and over again. Or how long did it take him to do it? And then we'll deal with the fact that God made the world through Jesus. There are two basic views of creation. The primary difference between the two is the speculated amount of time between God's creative acts. The first view is represented by young earth creationists. Young earth creationists who believe that it was all accomplished in 144 hours, six, six excuse me, successive 24-hour days. Six successive 24-hour days. Young earth creationism. And then there is the view, old earth creationism, or progressive creationism as it is called which allows for millions or even a billions of years to have been used by God in creation, that he took that amount of time to do it. Now, I want to say a few unifying words on the subject, because this is a subject that's debated within Christianity. And truthfully, it's a subject that's often very divisive in Christianity. So I want to say a few unifying thoughts. Number one, the age of the earth is not a test for orthodoxy. You understand that? Whether you believe that God did it in six 24-hour days or God did it in millions of years, neither camp can reject the other as being unorthodox or heretical. Both views are accepted as orthodox Christianity. Therefore, one camp should not be arrogant toward the other, should not belittle the other, should not reject the other. It's not a view for orthodoxy. Some things are. Like if you don't believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, if you don't believe in the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you don't have orthodox Christianity. If you don't believe that atonement is only through the cross of Jesus Christ, you don't have orthodox Christianity. You see? If you don't believe that God created all things, you don't have orthodox Christianity. Some things are a test for orthodoxy, but the age of the earth is not. Both views are acceptable within orthodox Christianity. Second thing I want to say as a unifying thought is this. Neither view is proven with scientific finality, and since there are unproven, if not unprovable, presuppositions associated with each, we need to chill. Neither one has scientific finality, since there are unproven or even unprovable presuppositions associated with each view. Thirdly, the fact of creation, as opposed to evolution, the fact of creation is more important than the time frame of creation. And fourthly, their common enemy, naturalistic evolution, is a more significant focus than their intramural differences. In other words, both young earth and old earth creationists should get together to combat the false idea of naturalistic macroevolution as opposed to engaging in too much infighting. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? 
Now, there are also many areas of agreement between young and old earth creationists. The first area where we agree is here. We agree that there is direct supernatural creation of all forms of life. Both camps would agree to that. Both believe that God made all life forms directly and immediately without natural processes over a long period of time. That is to say, without macroevolution. Both camps are opposed to naturalism. I'll define naturalism for you. Naturalism is a philosophical viewpoint according to which everything arises from natural properties and causes and supernatural or spiritual explanations are excluded. The question of origins again. Both groups see naturalism as a philosophical presupposition to macroevolution and agree that without naturalistic bias, evolution loses its credibility. So both camps believe that God created all things and all life forms, immediately spoke them into existence. Both camps are opposed to naturalism. There is a shared opposition to macroevolution. Both oppose macroevolution in the theory of common ancestry, either theistic evolution or non-theistic. Don't confuse a theistic evolutionist with an old earth creationist. They're not the same thing. Of course, a theistic evolutionist is going to have to have an old earth. Going to have to allow a lot of time for that evolutionary process to happen. But an old earth creationist is not saying that he believes in macroevolution or theistic evolution. They generally do not. Old earth creationists are not to be confused with theistic evolutionists. Old earth creationists do not accept macroevolution as a method by which God produced the originally created kinds in Genesis 1. Of course, both camps acknowledge microevolution, adaptation within species. No question about that. Fourth, what they have in common is they both accept the historicity of the Genesis account. While some may allow for poetic form and figure of speech in the narrative, all agree that it conveys historical and literal truth about origins. So though there are those that would interpret Genesis 1 to speak of long periods of time. And that would be a literal interpretation. It's not that they are seeing it as allegory now, or as myth, or as saga, or they haven't bought into the literary thing. They see it as a literal historical account, but they interpret it differently. That it literally speaks of long periods of time. And both believe that Adam and Eve were literal people, and the, how do you say that word? Prod... Yeah, thank you, progenitors of the entire human race. Why do I have a word in my own notes that I can't pronounce? <laughs> that is suspicious, isn't it? That smacks of something. So whether you believe in a young or an old earth, it's all right. It's cool. We're okay. It seems that the scientific data, many say, tips the scales toward an old earth. The testimony of Scripture, I say, seems more naturally understood, more naturally understood as pointing to a young earth. Now, there are those who would take exception. Young earth creation scientists 
say that all the time there is more and more evidence amassing for a young earth, and they would say that there's more evidence for a young earth. Old earth creation scientists would say that there's more evidence for an old earth. I guess it kind of depends on how you look at it. You know how that is. But I want us to, rem to remember from last week the concept of no final conflict. Remember that? Saying we can approach both scientific and biblical study with confidence that when all facts are correctly understood and when we have understood Scripture rightly, our findings will never be in conflict with each other. There will be no final conflict, right? This is because God who speaks in Scripture knows all facts and He has not spoken in a way that would contradict any true fact in the universe. So eventually, it's all going to make sense. And where there are areas of apparent conflict today between the Bible and science, either science is not complete in its understanding, or our interpretation of Scripture is not perfect. And understand, when we talk about young earth and old earth in that controversy, controversy, the, the literal interpretation of Scripture is, is not what is at stake. The infallibility of Scripture is not what is at stake. The inerrancy of Scripture is not what is at stake. What is at stake is long-held traditions. And that's what either camp might have to be willing to let go of in the final analysis, should there be conclusive evidence that tips the scales toward either direction. It's possible in the next few decades, because of advances in science, that we may see conclusive evidence one way or another. And then people have to be willing to let go of some of their long-held interpretations. It doesn't mean that the Bible was wrong. It doesn't mean that we now interpret uh, Genesis 1 as allegory or myth or saga or anything else. It means that our interpretations are influenced now. So what old earthers have done is basically observe the scientific claims for an old earth, seeing them as convincing, and then subsequently examine the scriptures to see if they could be interpreted as teaching an old earth and found it to be so. What young earthers have done is observe the scriptures and judge that they, are more, that they more easily convey a young earth and six 24-hour day creation and subsequently examined science to see if there was any support for a young earth and found it to be so. You understand that? Now, with regards to old earth, there's a few theories. Allowing for these long periods of time and an old earth is usually done by one of the following ways. Number one, placing the long periods of time, or placing some long periods of time before Genesis 1.1. A lot of things existed before Genesis 1-1 as far as time and space and matter, and that Genesis 1-1 speaks of a local and recent creation of just our environment. Another way that uh, long periods of time are allowed for is by placing them between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. This is called the gap view, and there's a few of them, so gap views, somewhat widely held. Another way that it's done is by making the days of Genesis 1 long periods of time. That it wasn't a 24-hour day as we know a day, but it was a long period of time. Who knows exactly how long? Some commentators, um, including R. Ken Hughes, says that they weren't 24-hour days, but they were days, but they were God's days. And they were long days. 
Fourth way that they do it is allowing long periods of time between the literal 24-hour days in Genesis. So they say that Genesis does speak of literal 24-hour days, but then there's long periods of time in between each of the days. This is called the alternate day-age view. And then the fifth way that they do it is by making the days of Genesis to be days of revelation from God to the writer of Genesis, not days of creation. These are called revelatory days that God revealed in those amounts of time, in those days, how he created things to the person. It wasn't speaking about how long it took him to create. Now, there are several variations within these perspectives, making a total of more than a dozen different views held by evangelical theologians on the matter. So the old earth opinions are broad, and there's various ways that they can account for a long period of time. And these uh, ideas have merit to them. People that argue them argue them convincingly. And they should not be dogmatic about them, but neither should young earthers be dogmatic. Now, to allow for a 24-hour, six-day creation in a young earth, that's usually done by the following ways. Number one, it's done, remember, the approach now is primarily from Scripture. Number one, it's done by claiming theological grounds. Romans 5.12 says that sin, or that death entered through sin and sin through one man. But if you have an old earth, you have a lot of death happening, animals, plants, so on and so forth, dying before Adam ever came along and died necessarily. So you have death before the fall, which seems to be inconsistent with a clear teaching of Romans 5.12. This is death came through sin to the world. It says that death came to the whole world. So they would claim that it's got to be a real six days on theological grounds. A second way that they would claim is by evaluating the language in Genesis chapter 1. Evaluating the language, such as the Hebrew word for day, yom, is a Hebrew word for day, yom. And they would argue effectively that anytime it's used the way that it's used there, it's speaking of a 24-hour day as we would know it. You know, and it does say there, there was evening and there was morning and there was a day, so on and so forth. So they would make some very strong arguments from the language of Genesis 1. And arguments that would say, listen, one of the ways that you study a Bible is you say, how would the original recipients have understood it? Because certainly God was wanting to communicate to them or they never would have attached themselves to the scriptures. It wouldn't have made any sense. It would have thrown them out at the onset. So in trying to understand the Bible, we want to try to understand how would the original recipients have read that. And they would argue that the people that first got Genesis 1, when they read it through, they would think that meant a day because of some of the language and some of the grammar. Another way that they would appeal to a young earth in a 24-hour, six-day creation is by citing scientific evidence for a young earth. And there is evidence for a young earth. Uh, part of this study is called flood geology, that the worldwide flood accounts for a lot of the geological structures that we've seen in the fossil records, so on and so forth, that would otherwise uh, po uh, point to long periods of time being necessary for them. So flood geology is a valid study. And I would recommend to you uh, the Creation Research Institute 
can find them online, Creation Research Institute. If you want to read some heavy-duty scientific stuff on the evidence for a young earth, it's great, very scientific. It's kind of above my head. Fourth way that they come to a young earth is by outright challenging some of the scientific findings and dating methods that point to an old earth. They just say now, it's a scientific opinion, that some of those dating methods are invalid, such as carbon-14 dating. They would do some studies on that and say that it can't necessarily be trusted all the time and so on and so forth. And there's whole books. I've got a book about that thick written on just carbon-14 dating. It's kind of over my head. But there's whole books that you can read on the subject. But they would challenge some of the assumptions of the way that uh, an old earth is dated and the way that those dates are come about. And the fifth way, is they would attempt to explain the appearance of an old earth through, through something called mature creationism. Mature creationism. Basically what they would say is this. Yes, we understand that the light of some of the stars took like 15 million years to get to the earth. And so one thing would say, you know, that star had to have been there 15 million years prior to any person to see it, so on and so forth. But a mature creationist would say this, God created the earth already with the beams of the stars shining on it. He just made the star with its beam reaching already to earth. He made certain valleys and structures that appeared to be old, already aged, what would have taken millions of years of erosion and so on and so forth. God just created the earth like that. He created a mature universe. Now that seems a little, a little fishy until you think about this. Well, is there precedent for that? Is there anything that we know for sure God created already mature? Adam. We know that for sure. He was not created as an infant. God communicated with him immediately. So there is precedent then for God creating some things mature. We would assume the animals. And the plants as well. So it's really not that far out there, especially when you call to mind the anthropic principle that the universe seems to be designed, at least definitely our earth seems to be designed as a perfect environment for man to exist in. When you remember the anthropic principle, it's not outlandish at all to think that God created a mature universe. The beams of the stars already here. Why? Because the stars speak forth of his glory. And that man looked upon creation and saw the light and the stars and the structures and the geology and it glorified God. That's a major goal of creation is to glorify God. It speaks of the glory of God. The heavens declare his handiwork. But neither of these views, old earth, young earth, are as simple as they seem. And there are tremendous difficulties with each view. And there are well-meaning intelligent, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians on both sides of it. So then both views are to be accepted as orthodox. Both are to be accepted as orthodox. And that's about all the evidence I'm going to give for both views. I'm not going to give any more. But it would be wise for us to realize these three points. Number one, God may not allow us a clear solution before Jesus comes back. 
It's one of those things that we might just not know for sure until we see the Lord. Secondly, evangelical scientists and theologians who fall in both camps need to begin to work together with much less arrogance, much more humility, and a much greater sense of cooperation in a common purpose. That doesn't just go for scientists and theologians, but for general Christians. I think it would behoove Christians to fight a little bit less about the age of the earth and join together and fight a little bit more about naturalistic evolution and the philosophical presuppositions of it, namely that there is no God and then the moral implications thereof. Thirdly, young and old earth proponents could cooperate much more in amassing the extremely strong arguments for creation by intelligent design and laying aside their differences over the age of the earth. And I'll finish that section of the message with this quote that explains it well. There are difficulties with both viewpoints. Difficulties that the proponents of each view often seem unable to see in their own positions. Now, can't you relate to that? I get so convinced of my own position, sometimes I just can't see the evidence for the other side. And I am one that, that, that needs to be less arrogant in my viewpoints, more humble in my viewpoints. Progress will certainly be made if old earth and young earth scientists who are Christians will be more willing to talk to each other without hostility, ad hominem attacks, or highly emotional accusations. On the other hand, and without a spirit of condescension or academic pride on the other. For these attitudes are not becoming to the body of Christ, nor are they characteristic of the way of wisdom as shown in James 3, 17 through 18, which says, Wisdom is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, without uncertainty and insincerity. Insincerity. And full of the recognition that the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So, I am a young earth creationist. I believe that God did it in six 24-hour days. I think there's good reason to believe that. I pursue that viewpoint. I study that viewpoint. I espouse that viewpoint. But I'm not going to fight about that viewpoint on Sunday morning. Maybe when I teach the book of Genesis. But not in the book of Hebrews. Returning now to our text, we have now something before us in our text that every Christian agrees with, and that is this statement, through whom also he made the world. Every Christian agrees with that statement, that God made the world through Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that, you're not a biblical Christian. Give it up. You're something else. That's a very clear teaching of Scripture. There is no way around it. God made the world through the Son. Now, in the doctrine of creation, the Father is the agent in initiating the act of creation. In the doctrine of creation, the Father seems to be one who initiates creation. 
But the Son is the active agent carrying out the plans and the directions of the Father. That's what it says there. Through whom he made the world. The Son is the active member of the Godhead in creation. Now, don't we see the same thing throughout the Gospels, just in the everyday actions of Jesus? Jesus says, I do what the Father tells me to do. I do what I see the Father doing. I only do that which the Father wills. It seems that in inter-Trinitarian communication and interaction between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the Father seems so often to will it, and the Son does it. It's interesting. It's a Trinity thing. The Son is the active agent carrying out the plans and directions of the Father. We see that consistent in the Gospels with everything Jesus does. Now, remember the point. The author of Hebrews is wanting to elevate the person of Jesus Christ in the minds of those who are in danger of giving up on their faith. And what greater way could he do so than to declare to them that Jesus is the creator of all things? A wonderful proof for the deity of Jesus Christ because only God can create. And if all things were made by him and through him, we'll see in a moment, if all things are made by him and through him, then it's absolutely certain that he is God. And the proper doctrine of creation says that God created all things out of nothing. He created all things out of nothing. There was nothing but him, and he spoke, and time and matter became. He created everything out of nothing. Only God can do that. Jesus Christ did that. Therefore, according to the Scriptures, Jesus Christ is God. He's wanting to elevate the person of Jesus Christ because they're getting wobbly in their faith. They're thinking about going back to Judaism. And he's saying, man, you have it all in Jesus Christ. In fact, that book, Genesis, that you know so well, that's Jesus there. When it says, let us make man in our image, that's the Trinity that's spoken of there. And when it speaks about God saying, speaking things into existence with his words, well, Jesus is the word. John 1, 1 through 3 says it. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That is the proper, orthodox, biblical view of Jesus Christ. Is that He is a creator of all things. And there's nothing that exists apart from Him. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says the same thing. Starting in verse 5, it says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, lowercase g and l, yet for us there is but one God and Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And we exist through him. He's the creator of all things. If he's the creator of all things, that means apart from him, you've got nothing. If we exist through him, listen, you have nothing without the person of Jesus Christ in your life. Do you understand? 
Colossians 1.16, a beautiful passage. It says, for by him, speaking of Jesus, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. All things are created by him and for him. It's important that the Christian realizes as we're talking about the doctrine of creation that we exist for him. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And you see the goal of the Christian then is to bring the totality of their life under the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. To bring everything under his lordship. To withhold nothing. Because if he made all things, he owns all things. And if he's the creator of all things, he's the Lord of all things. And all things not only exist by him, but for him. Your life is for him. And you see where life gets difficult as Christians is when we try to live for ourselves. In the minutia of the day, in our marriages, in our workplace, in our plans, when we endeavor strictly to live for ourselves, and we would never verbalize it that way. We wouldn't say that, oh, I'm living for myself, I'm a Christian. We wouldn't say that, but effectively that's what we do a lot of times. There's a lot of, in Christianity, there's a lot of practical deists. You see, a Christian is supposed to be a theist. A theist believes that there's one creator God who is involved in that creation and sustains it. A deist believes that there's a creator God who created it and said, see you later, and removes himself from it. Christians are supposed to be theists, realizing that God made us and wants to be intimately and infinitely involved with us, and that he's the one who has to sustain us and hold our lives together. But there's a lot of practical deists. You acknowledge, oh yes, God, but you live your life as if he had nothing to do with it. That's a problem. That's a problem that needs to be repented of on a grand scale and on a granular scale. In the large scope of things and in the minutia of the day, we don't want to be found as practical deists, acknowledging God but not really letting him be involved at all in our lives. The scriptures are so clear. He's intimately and infinitely and wonderfully concerned with your comings and your goings. And he wants to be and ought to be and must be the Lord of the totality of our lives. Amen? And this Jesus who is Lord, who is creator, who is master, who is God, how more, what more could the author of Hebrews do to encourage his frightened brothers than to remind them of that simple fact? Surely a Christ whose hands had shaped the universe and summoned the galaxy of stars into being could hold these Jewish Christians in days of testing and guide their steps through times of adversity. That's what he's endeavoring to do. He's saying, listen, if this guy could speak the world into existence, if he could sprinkle the heavens with his hands, so to speak, he can deal with your life. He can preserve you through the difficulty. He's bigger than Nero. He's bigger than the IRS. 
He's bigger than your boss at work. He's bigger than your unbelieving spouse. He's bigger than your science prof. He's bigger than all of them. And everything that is created declares the glory of this God. And everything that is created speaks of his kindness and his goodness and his mercy and his care and his willingness and desire and insistence on being involved in our lives. And he's saying to them, brothers and sisters, those circumstances are difficult and not everything makes sense. Jesus Christ is with you and he is Lord over all. And so be encouraged today. Whatever's going on in your life, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how big, no matter how scary, no matter how little you want to let it go, be encouraged today. He's Lord of all, over all, and he loves you so much. He, he took time now. He took time in creation to number the hairs upon your head. Did you know that you have a thumbprint that is absolutely unique? No one else on the face of the earth has that? Gets you in trouble someday. You don't play your cards right. God made you unique. You're absolutely special to him. You're a very special part of creation. And he created you to love you. He didn't create you to love him. He is all sufficient in and of himself. Somebody better say amen. amen. He is an all sufficient God. Doesn't need you. Doesn't need me. He created you to love you. Oh, yes, reciprocity demands that you love him back. Show enough. That's fine. We're going to love him back. That's the right response. But he didn't create you because he needed some little person to love him. He created you because he is love. And he created you to love you. And it speaks to the glory of God when people like you and I receive the love of God. It glorifies God that he could love and save sinners like us. That he would redeem us and be near to us. That he would be concerned with our lives. That he'd be concerned about your health and your wellness and your family and your emotions and your fears. That God would care about those things glorifies the person of Jesus Christ. And he created us that he might love us and that he might be glorified. That's the reason for creation. It's beautiful. And our job as those who have been redeemed is to actualize that, realize that, act upon that. And so just receive the love of God today. Just receive the love of God today. Just let his love overflow you and fill you and flood your life today. If there's anything you're lacking, it's that experience of the love of Jesus Christ. Maybe what's standing in the way is your sins, and you know you need to repent today of your sins. Brothers and sisters, come and get forward on your face before this wonderful God. Maybe you've just gotten hard in your heart, and you love your pain. You've had it for so long, it feels like home to you. Let it go to Jesus Christ today. Let him heal you today. Feel, experience, know, understand by faith the love of God today. All of creation speaks of how wonderful he is and how much he loves you. Don't let anything stand in the way of you laying hold of that love today. 
We would miss the whole point of the book of Hebrews if we didn't experience that love today. If it's lacking, get on your face and cry out to him. He hears you. He hears you when you cry to him. If you're feeling far off today, get on your face. Cry out to him. God, I want you. I need you. I need more of you. God, heal me. God, fill me. God, meet me here. He's a beautiful Lord. He's a creator of all things, and he loves us. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful truth. Holy Spirit, come now. Manifest the love of God in this place. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, that Holy Spirit, you pour the love of the Father abroad in our hearts. The Father initiated creation that he might love us. All things were created through and by Jesus Christ. He came to redeem us. And now, Holy Spirit, help us to experience the reality of these things. Not because we're looking for a feeling, but because we know it's real. Come, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Pour the love of the Father into our hearts. Holy Spirit, there's men and women here who are broken and hurt, and we need the love of the Father to heal us. Come and meet us, God great and awesome God who made all things and knows and loves us. Come and meet us here. Prayer team is here for your needs. So the love of God minister to us.